last week we started talking about what was Jesus going through the closer that he got to his death. The things that must have been in his mind, in his heart, in his soul as he got closer to knowing that he was going to go through that unbelievable pain and suffering that he was going to go through. There had to be expectations. And as we watch that little clip there, we think about Palm Sunday and we think about all the expectations that so many had of Jesus. And we think about after 33 years of human experience, as I asked last week, what were some of the things that Jesus maybe wanted to experience that he knew he would never experience as a human? How did he stay so clearly focused on the God who called him to save the world in the midst of these emotional and relational betrayals by so many, even those that were closest to him? And we looked at some of the statements and even the questions that Jesus asked, reminding us of his mission and his kingdom in the world, the objectives that God had for him. And they were so different, the expectations Jesus had to do what God asked him to do were very different than the people wanted of Jesus. And it's easy for us, I think, in our culture to say, yeah, why didn't they get it? Why didn't they have the same expectations for Jesus as Jesus did? I mean, we've been reading the Bible and we know what Jesus' mission was. But really, y'all, if we really are honest with ourselves, do we not have expectations of Jesus in much the same way that that first century bunch did? We want Jesus to change things. We want Jesus to make things right in our world, don't we? And what that looks like for you and what that looks like for me may be different but when I look at my expectations of Jesus, a lot of times they're, they're pretty selfish. I want my world to be fixed. I want justice for me and my family, for me and my country. I want justice in my world. But it can become a little selfish. And last week we talked about some of those statements that Jesus made, some of those questions that Jesus asked. And again, they were very different than our human goals and expectations. Remember we talked about Jesus says, whoever wants... To save his life will lose it. But whoever is willing to lose his life for the gospel and for me will save it. What a powerful statement. Do we really even grasp that? And then he said, what good, is it, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? And we think about that. We see a lot of people all over this world who are going after the world and in the process are forfeiting their souls. And when Jesus said these countercultural statements, and when he answered the religious leaders in some of the questions they asked him trying to, to trap him, people were stunned at his responses. And they would catch themselves, as I do, reading those passages over and over again and repeating what Jesus said. Now, what did that mean? Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. What did he mean by that? It caught us trying to make sense of us. But as Jesus told Nicodemus in that very famous meeting that he had late one night, as we know as John 3.16, he basically told Nicodemus, if you don't understand these things, it's because you have not been born again. So to really understand all that Jesus was trying to say to us, we have to be born again. And last week we looked at four requests made by various people of Jesus, these requests, and how Jesus responded to their requests. And interestingly enough, as we looked at last week, Jesus answered and responded to every one of those requests, but not necessarily with what that person wanted, was it? 
In some cases it was, but in other cases it was something very different. It wasn't what that person wanted in their request, but it's what they needed. And we get those two mixed up so many times. I know I do. And so we asked ourselves last week, what request would I make of Jesus? What request, what request would you make of Jesus if he said, what do you want from me today? What would that be from you? And that's a very personal answer. But today I want us to look at that Sunday before Resurrection Sunday, before Easter Sunday, when Jesus rose from the tomb. And we know it as Palm Sunday. We know it as the triumphal entry, and all four Gospels record it. John's is a little different, as, as it always is. But they all talk about Jesus coming into Jerusalem, knowing that this was going to be his final week. And there were these huge expectations. Jesus is experiencing unbelievable popularity at this time, especially because if you look back just a few chapters in all the Gospels, we know that he has just raised Lazarus from the dead. That's a big thing. People go, we've heard about all these things, but he actually called this man out of the tomb after he had been in the tomb for three or four days. This guy has to be the Messiah if he can raise the dead. If he can raise Lazarus, then he can raise our nation to what it needs to be. So there were these, these high, high expectations for what Jesus was going to do in Jerusalem and throughout the whole world. The religious leaders are losing their minds because of Jesus' popularity. People don't, don't respect them anymore. They don't really want to hear them anymore. They want to go hear Jesus teach because he taught, as the gospel tells us, one who had authority and they loved his parables. They loved his stories about the kingdom, about those grace parables, about the prodigal son. That's what they wanted to hear. And Jesus' popularity was driving them crazy. And also his ability to quickly avoid and elude their verbal traps. He handles each with ease and leaves them speechless, not knowing what to come back with to Jesus. So what are we to make of this entry of the king into the city riding on a donkey don't kings, don't warriors come in on a white stallion, not a donkey, with full armor and with an army around him, but instead he comes in on a donkey, a lowly donkey. He comes in with these different group of disciples that have been following for all these days, three years, fishermen, tax collectors, just regular ordinary people. How is that going to be a king? What are we to make of these people throwing their branches onto the ground, their cloaks onto the ground? What does all of that mean? Well, I want us to look this morning at Luke's account, and we have it in all four Gospels, but I want us to look at Luke 19, chapter 28 through 44. And, you know, as I thought about expectations, we all have these expectations for Jesus, but we have expectations in a lot of things in life. And let's be honest, most of the time where we get most disappointed in life is when the expectations we have of life don't come to fruition. Is that not true? It was supposed to happen this way, but it didn't. And, and we have disappointment with that. I think about how odd it would be that very... I think Mike was just mentioning it. We know that all these people that are cheering Jesus' name this Sunday, Palm Sunday, as he goes into Jerusalem, within seven days, what are they going to be yelling? Crucify him. How did that happen in such a short time? Well, we know that when something happens and the expectations I'm expecting don't happen, I react emotionally to that. I mean, I think about 
it would seem odd if I filled out a bracket for the NCAA tournament and I filled out North Carolina to win the whole thing. Well, when North Carolina didn't win, I just wadded up my chart, I mean my bracket, and threw it away and I said, I'm not watching anymore because my team didn't win. You would think that was odd. If, if today Tiger Woods hits, um, you know, he's two behind in the Masters. If, if he makes bogey on the first three or four, four holes and I just go, I'm turning the TV off, I'm not going to watch it if Tiger's not going to win, you would think that was odd. But my expectations, that's how we act in real life, don't we? Now, if I see anybody on their phone, I'm going to know you're watching. But the leaderboard's right there. I'm just kidding, it's really not. <laughs> But it would seem odd we have these high expectations from our sports teams, from our kids, from our employees, from our politicians. We have all these high expectations from our spouses. And time after time, we somehow get disappointed. So that's what we're going into as Jesus comes in to town. Let's read 19 verses 28 through 44 from Luke and let's see what he says. Chapter 19 of Luke, starting in verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And they were unt- as they were untying the colt, its owners asked him, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on him. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not, listen to this, you did not recognize the time of God's coming. And I think about that last statement. How could we not recognize the time of God's coming. And again, I think we're hard on these people. Go, Why didn't they get it? Why didn't they understand? But we still have these high expectations of Jesus that are unrealistic for what his real mission is. And I think Jesus obviously anticipated, he planned this to go exactly the way it was going to go. How did he know exactly where a cult was that had never been ridden? He knew about the prophecies about Zechariah 9 where it talks about your king shall come in peace riding on a donkey. He knew that needed to be fulfilled. So he was going to actually live that out literally. Not figuratively, but literally fulfill these prophecies. And we think about Psalm 118 and the different, um, all the different prophecies that Jesus fulfilled as he came in. 
He wanted to clarify his purpose. He came to give us what we needed. And I think about Luke when he says, as they went to find the donkey, they found it just as he said it would be. And that reminded me of Luke when he talks about the birth of Jesus. And the shepherds went and found the baby just as the angels said it would be. Luke understands this and he connects all these dots for us. He clarifies Jesus' purpose. He came to give us forgiveness of sin. Not what we wanted. What they wanted is they wanted a nation like it used to be in the glory days of David and Solomon. Where we were no longer under the thumb of some other ruler, but we were free. We were the ones in charge. We were the ones receiving all the the taxes from all the other nations. We were the ones that all the other nations feared. We were the ones that were the top dog. That's what we want to return to. But Jesus said, that's not what you need. We've already tried that. You've already proved you couldn't handle that. You became arrogant. You did not become the reflection of who I am. You became the reflection of what you wanted to be. And when I think about that kind of statement, I think that's what we become sometimes, don't we? We want to be who God's called us to be, but in the process, we become really who we want to be. We want everybody to notice us, not be a reflection of the God we say that we worship and serve. But he also wanted to demonstrate his love. And I think about weeping over his people and their refusal to see his true purpose and peace. Jesus actually, you see his heart there, don't you? He understands that they don't understand and it breaks my heart that you can't realize what I'm really doing for you. And the palm branches signal the crowd's high expectations of Jesus. This harkens back to the days of David and Solomon, these kind of palm acting out Jewish history, the days of David when he was the great king coming back from battle and he would come in and there would be these parades and people would come and cheer. They remember from reading and hearing those stories for over and over again in Solomon and all his glory days. But even more recent than that, a guy named Jonathan Merritt explains, he said they told also just a few hundred years before this of a guy named Judas Maccabeus. Now we don't read about him in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, but we know he was a freedom fighter who entered Jerusalem some 200 years before Jesus did. And as he approached, people did wave palm branches and sang hymns. And when Judas finally arrived, he defeated, at the time, the Syrian king and recaptured the temple in Jerusalem, got out all of the pagans and reigned over a century before Rome would come in and take over the city. So it's only been a couple of hundred years since they realized, not just those hundreds of years when David and Solomon were reigning, but even just a couple of hundred years ago, they remember. And they say, the king has come back, he's returned. Now God's going to set us in that place again. But interesting, in this same article, this guy named Jonathan Merritt shares that there was an article in New York Magazine published back in 2016 called The Science of Disappointment. Did you know there was a science of disappointment? And it's interesting, the article starts by stating the obvious, which is this. It says, the feeling of being let down is actually one of life's toughest emotional experiences. Who would not agree with that? When all of us, and I know it seems obvious, but anybody that's sitting there today, you think about one of the most difficult times in my life is when I have felt betrayed or let down by someone. Whether that was a spouse or a family member or a son or a daughter or a parent or a best friend or, or somebody at work, whoever it would be, a politician, whatever it is, when we feel let down, that is one of the most difficult, toughest emotional experiences. But this article goes on to explain how the chemical dopamine, you all know what that is, that we are have in our system. It works in our brain and it reacts differently. When we anticipate a 
situation that we are going to experience joy, and then we actually experience that joy, our body is flooded with dopamine, and we have these feelings of euphoria, of I anticipated that, and it came out just like I wanted to, maybe even better, and we feel that. But they say the difference also is, when we experience high hopes or expectation, that end is disappointment, our brain realizes that, and the dopamine doesn't come out. And then the thing is, this article says it's very interesting that our brain remembers certain people. It remembers certain situations where we've been disappointed. And our brain, when those, we have these expectations, but then our brain kind of goes, no, notch it back. Remember the last time you tried to expect that and you didn't get it? And then all of a sudden, dopamine doesn't come at all. And we have these feelings of anxiety and we just get to a point where we don't hope, we don't dream, we don't have high expectations anymore. And the Palm Sunday story displays the transition from expectation to disappointment. Literally, Jesus not, doesn't tell a parable on Palm Sunday. Jesus acts out the parable on Palm Sunday. The triumphant entry becomes a trial by Thursday evening, doesn't it? It's triumphant. Jesus, you're the man. And by Thursday, he's on trial. The trial quickly escalates to a conviction and the sentence becomes execution by late Thursday night or early Friday morning. This writer of this article says, Jesus entered the city on a donkey, but we know he will leave in a body bag. We know that. Jesus has already told him that. This is not just a fun parade. Jesus is walking down. He's actually walking down death row. And he seems to be the only one that really understands that. The expectations we place on others and even God can ferment into distrust. Author Anne Lamott says this, expectations are, listen to this, expectations are resentments under construction. Interesting. The word disillusion has gotten a bad rap in recent times. The writer of this article goes on, he says, but it's God's gift with abundance. Disillusionment is, well, the loss of an illusion. It's what happens to you when you take a lie a lie about the world, a lie about yourself, about those you love, about God, and you replace it with the truth. Disillusionment occurs when God shatters our fantasies, tears down our idols, He dismantles our cardboard cutouts. It occurs when we discover that God does not conform to our expectations, but rather exists as a mystery beyond those expectations. And that's really what we need. It goes back to our needs. Barbara Brown Taylor, who's an Episcopal minister in her book called God in Pain, has this interesting definition of disillusionment. We find out what is not true and we are set free to ask what is, if we dare, to turn away from God who was supposed to be in order to seek the God who is. And that's true about disillusionment. So today I think... All of us need to ask, do we really recognize the time of God's coming to us in Jesus Christ? Because it's all happened. It's happened to all of us somewhere in our life. Maybe it's happening today that Jesus is coming to you through the Word, through a song today, through something that's going on in your mind and in your life right now. Whatever you may be struggling with today, right now in your life, maybe God coming to you in a way to remind you that He's really there. And it's different for all of us, but make no mistake, Jesus has come to you and continues to pursue us in so many mysterious ways. And when he has and does, what are our expectations when he comes to us? Fix this. Make this go well. Do we want our needs to be met in and through him? 
Or do we want to have our needs met and through my way? And you know what? God, God makes us parents for a reason. I cannot tell you how many times, and y'all can laugh at me because I tell you these crazy stories about trying to raise kids and I'm a mess at it. But God reminds me every day why he uses the word Heavenly Father to describe who he is. Because there's so many times I'm trying to explain things to my kids logically and from an experiential situation that I've already been in. I'm trying to explain. I've done this before. I'm telling you, this is the way it's going to happen. If you do this, I'm trying to help you. I'm not trying to just micromanage your life. And they don't want to hear it. They know better. You ever been talking to your kid when they know better? It's so frustrating, but you, in your heart, and you see that rebellious, that wall that goes up, and I know, I know, I know, I know, Dad. I hear that all the time. I know, Dad. But you don't know, and it's like Jesus, as he's looking over Jerusalem, he's saying, you don't know. You're throwing down your cloaks, you're throwing down your palm branches, you're saying, you know, blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord, but you really don't understand why I'm coming. No, we know, Lord. No, you don't. And I wish you did, and it causes him to physically cry emotionally because he realizes what a difficult time, and he predicts what's going to happen in about you know, 70 A.D., and it exactly happened just like he said. Jerusalem will be overtaken, and that whole temple would be dismantled stone by stone. None of it was left standing. And Jesus is not just crying about the temple, but about they did not recognize the coming of God. They would rather have their religion than have the relationship with God. And sometimes that's the way we are. I wonder, does Jesus cry over this congregation today knowing our reactions if our expectations are not met like we want them to be? Would he cry over us? How about us as individuals? Would he cry over the expectations I have and you have when they're unrealistic, they're not along his mission? Some of us will walk out of here today disappointed that something in the service or in the building today didn't meet our expectations. You know what? You'll go to lunch and you'll talk about that and you'll harp on that and you'll miss maybe God coming to you in a different way today because you're harping on your expectations. Does Jesus ever cry over me or you and the things we expect that are so self-centered but so ultimately destructive. And that's when I go back to talking to my kids sometimes. You're trying to explain that to them. And they just don't understand that. No, but I can do that and I won't get hurt. I can do that because I figured out a better way to do it. And you try to say, no, you don't understand. God said that's destructive. I don't care how many of your cool friends, I don't know how many people have tweeted out about it. It's still destructive. It may not be destructive right now, but down the road it will be destructive. Listen to your parents. And that's what God's saying to us in the triumphal entry. Listen to what I'm saying. I'm going to die for you. You need forgiveness. You need salvation. That's what you really need. Yes, I can heal you. Yes, I can raise you from the dead. Yes, I can walk on water. But that's not going to save you from your sins. My death and resurrection will save you from your sins. So that's what I've got to do. And that's why he goes to Jerusalem. So I think about, does Jesus cry as I tend to use him as a vending machine? You ever put money in a vending machine and, you know, you pull the thing or you push the button and you go, whoa, 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 what's going on? And it's, you know, maybe see it hung up in there. You ever done that? And you kind of look around and you start shaking the machine or maybe hitting it or kicking it, hoping that it'll drop out of there and you don't get it. And you go, who do I go to to get my money? 
And that's the way I think God feels about us sometimes. We demand. Or we, I'll never use that vending machine ever again. Or that company again. Because you took my money. And we do that with God sometimes. My expectations weren't met in my family, in my job, in my finances, and in my life. So I will have nothing more to do with you, God. And we miss out on what he's trying to teach us in those situations. The fact that Jesus cried in this text and a few others at, at, at Lazarus' grave. Luke talks about in chapter 13, he goes, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you under my wings like a, a mother hen. But you just won't have it. You don't really want the relationship. You just want the religion and the power. And you're missing out. And he really shows us how much he loves us and how he longs to be in authentic and meaningful relationship with us. So this week I want to challenge everybody here. I want you to, to go and read the Gospels from what we read today from the triumphal entry. You can do it in Luke. You can do it in any of them. But start in chapter 20 and read what Jesus taught this last week. Read what Jesus had to deal with this last week. What he encountered. What people confronted him with on this week. And think about what they said and what he was getting ready to do. Read Matthew 25. Read John 13 when it talks about Jesus washing the disciples' feet in that long chapter. Think about the things Jesus did and said close to his death for all of humanity, for me and for you. So who or what is the king of our life? The triumphal entry begs me to think about that. What really is the king? Who really is the king in my life? Is it a what or is it a who? And Jesus begs us to realize it's him, it's relationship. What expectations or disappointments do you have with Jesus this morning? And guess what, y'all? He is okay with that. He is okay with that. When I read the pages of the Bible, there were tons and tons of people who were mad, angry, upset with God. Read some of David's psalms. Why is this happening? Jesus, even on the cross, will say, My God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me. Why have you left me alone to take all these sins by myself? That's how he felt so lonely. But do you and I really want peace today? Then we have to take hold of what will truly bring us peace today. And that's salvation in and through Jesus' life and his death. In his resurrection. And if we truly want to be followers, if we really, really are going to follow him, we have to understand that. And will we recognize the time of God coming to us? And so I ask, you know, as you read those gospel things this week, maybe you've got a devotion, but I also would ask you to think about this God, help me to recognize the times when you're coming to me in my life when I'm thinking it's some terrible tragedy, but you're coming to me to teach me something. And I want to thank, as I look around this audience, so many people in this audience today who I've watched you go through terrible tragedies. And the way you've handled those has made me understand that it was something from God. Initially, I go, oh, how horrible for them, for that person. But the way you've responded and the fact that you're sitting here today tells me that Jesus is still your king, even in the midst of the hurt and difficulties that you've encountered in your life. That's what the church is all about, is it not? As a community, we bond together in those difficult times and lean into God, not away from Him. So this morning, maybe there's somebody who needs to recognize that I need God in my life. I don't want to miss that opportunity. I don't want to miss that. I don't want Him to one day go, how did you not see that, Craig? So if you have a decision this morning, we're going to offer that 
opportunity for you to make that decision to name Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And it's a process. But the first step is coming and naming as your Lord and Savior and being baptized into Him. Or maybe there's somebody that's looking for a church home. And I can promise you there's people in this church who have gone through so many difficult things and yet are still here today worshiping because they truly have made Jesus King. So if you have one of those decisions this morning, we ask you to come forward as Mike comes and lead us in a song.